In Buddhism, there's a phrase where we talk about conditioned arising, and it's that same word, conditioned. Things are conditional. Uh, when this is, that is. From the arising of this comes the arising of that. From the cessation of this comes the cessation of that. This is, quote is attributed to the Buddha. The Buddha talked about things are interdependent. Things depend upon conditions. You change the conditions, you change the thing. My name is Stephen Smith, and this is the 3 Pi Squared ABA Business Leaders Podcast. On this podcast, we discuss the business of ABA and how to create an ethical and sustainable ABA practice. For more information on our ABA Business Leaders membership or any of the other services and products we provide, you can check us out at www.3pisquared.com. Okay, hi everyone. Today we have Andy Bondi with us. He is the co-creator of PEX, and he's going to be talking about the beautiful Eiffel Path and behavior analysis. So a very interesting topic. Welcome, Andy. Looking forward to talking about this topic. It's a very personal topic, if you will, and I want to assure everybody right off the bat, there is no proselytizing about Buddhism or anything else. This is really just kind of a reflection on my personal journey. Many years ago, I was starting to study Buddhism, uh, looking for other ways of doing things. In studying, starting to read up on Buddhism and study a little bit. Uh, I found out from a graduate student friend of mine that one of our professors back in graduate school, Sunan Kabosi, was a Buddhist minister. And then I found out that, uh, about the ministry he held in Chicago, and I went to meet him and talk to him. And, and that led to me studying with group that he's formed. And as I studied more and more about Buddhism, every now and then I would just have these aha moments. My thinking about Buddhism is like this. And look, my thinking about behavior analysis is this. It's wonderful and cool. So I decided to start sharing some of my very personal thoughts. Buddhism, if you know nothing about Buddhism, there's as much variation about Buddhist, if you will, principles, tenets, how to do it, as there is any other type of religion or large group. So you know, if you've met a Buddhist, you've met a Buddhist. But in trying to help people understand a little bit about what the practice is, I often start off with a picture. This flower, this is a lotus. And a lotus is often used as an imagery in Buddhism because it's a beautiful, beautiful flower, but it grows in the muck and the mire. So things that have these almost ugly origins, if you will, still come out beautiful. And so a lot of people think about this. And when you look at this, you look at the color and the green and the different colors that it's stunning. I mean, you just feel this warmth and glow. And then here's another picture. That's the seed pod from that very same lotus flower. That is the same flower just months later. But think about how you react to it. It's old, it's desiccated, it's dried, it's not pretty. And you know you're down the path of Buddhism when you can look at these two pictures and go, they're the same. Not just intellectually, but really understand these are the same. And how we come to view them as different ones, beautiful ones, old ones, ugly ones, bright. That's a lot about 
what the study of Buddhism is about. How do we come to see the world as we see it, as opposed to how it actually is? This topic is not sort of new. There are a lot of other people who have studied Buddhism and looked at its relationship. There are publications in prominent behavioral journals. I am not trying to compare my views with anybody else's. As I said, this is a personal journey. Well, if you think about what we do in behavior analysis, when you try to explain, you know, you, you go to your grandmother and say, I'm a behavior analyst. And she said, what's that? <laughs> and you try to make sense of it in kind of straightforward manner. You may get hung up for a little bit on the word behavior, you know, not just things that are inside of you, but things you're doing. But the real key is the word analysis. What we study is behavior under what conditions. We do not study behavior in isolation. It's in the term, but, but the real key is we study what happens before, what happens after. It's the context. It's the conditional relationship. Well, in Buddhism, there's a phrase where we talk about conditioned arising. And it's that same word, condition. Things are conditional. Uh, when this is, that is. From the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this is of that, is it from the cessation of this comes the cessation of that. This is, quote is attributed to the Buddha. The Buddha talked about things are interdependent. Things depend upon conditions. You change the conditions, you change the thing. So this relationship between uh, behavior and its conditions, very similar in both approaches. In the Buddha's life, there's a story about him sort of leaving home and rejecting all the things that he grew up with and trying to find enlightenment was the word. And when he found enlightenment, he, he gave a talk to several other people who were on similar quest. And the very first talk, I uh, talked about what people call about four noble truths. Some people, when they think about Buddhism, Buddhism believes that, you know, life is suffering, but suffering is the core of everything. And I don't think that's a good word for the core. The root word, the first of the noble truths is a Sanskrit word, dukkha. And the problem is in any language, especially if you will, any ancient language, the word is always more nuanced than a single translation. So while some people have translated dukkha as suffering, there are a lot of people who really think that's not a good translation of what the word meant. If you will, the root of the word dukkha comes from the description of the actions of a wheel on an axle rolling down the road. Think of transportation way back when. No ball bearings, just a wheel on an axle. So it was wobbling. And essentially, that's the first of the noble truth. The nature of the world is wobbly. Things are impermanent, inconsistent. The line is birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, sickness is dukkha, death is dukkha, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair. All these things that happen are part of life. However, because we are human beings, we react to those changes. It is from the reactions that we may suffer. We don't have to, but we may. So the world isn't causing the suffering. Our reactions to things happening in the world, that may lead to suffering. But then the interesting thing is neurota. That is, there is a way to learn to contain those reactions. The word neurota 
comes from a Sanskrit word that describes when you build a fire, instead of having the fire just run all over the place, you build a little containment wall around the fire. That containment wall, the root of that was Naroda, meaning you're going to react, yes, but you know what? It doesn't have to get out of control and just ruin everything. How do you do that? How do you learn to contain it? Well, that's the last part. And that's called Marga, the middle way, the eightfold path. There are eight recommendations that the Buddha has for how you can arrange your life to contain your reactions to the dukkha that is going to happen. The key is dukkha happens. You cannot eliminate dukkha. Fighting that is what leads to problems. What I'm going to do is talk about that eightfold path. What are those things we can do? And they're all actions. They're not just thoughts and ways and beliefs. There are things we can actually do. So we're going to talk about each of them and then kind of link it to how might it influence me acting as a behavior analyst, acting as a consultant, acting as trying to influence other people to do better. Okay, so that's what the rest of this little talk is going to be about. So in this, where it says right, like right understand, it doesn't mean right versus wrong. It means that this is a balanced perspective, if you will. Uh, it, it's not a good or bad evaluative thing. It's like if you do it this way, you might suffer less. So the first thing to understand is everything is impermanent. If you will, impermanent is one of the most important words in Buddhism. My line is this becomes that, and that becomes something else. It's not circular. It doesn't go back. It just keeps on changing. This becomes that. That becomes something else. That changes, and it keeps on going. And we fight that all the time. When things are really good, I don't want it to stop. And when things are really bad, I want it to go away now. And so we're always fighting this impermanent nature of the world. It's hard to if you will, not just accepted intellectually, but accepted in terms of what we do. Now, when you think about that word impermanence and behavior analysis, it's often not talked about. But if you think about it, without impermanence, there would be no learning. Impermanence comes because behavior has variations. Behavior does not occur exactly the same way over and over. Because of those little variations, you can engage in shaping. Shaping depends upon variability. And think what we often do. We often are trying to teach kids, do it again, do it again, do it again, without variation. That is fighting the impermanent nature of the world. If you actually did that well, you would just make kids miserable because the world is impermanent. Trying to pretend that you can guarantee the world will remain the same is a disservice to everybody, including all the kids we're trying to help. So... Response variation leads to shaping, generalization, thinning schedules of reinforcement. All of those things that we do in those gradual, small, tiny manners that add up, that's the key. Skinner talks about the relationship between shaping behaviors and evolution. If you think about evolution itself as a process, we think about uh, selection of the fittest, but that's not the core of evolution. The core of evolution is that when DNA replicates, it does not do it perfectly. There were tiny variations in that process. Those lead to what we call mutations. Most of those mutations don't work out well. But every now and then, some variation, some mutation works in a new environment. 
Think about what happened during the pandemic, if you will, it forced a lot of people to do things differently. And people were scared to do things differently. And then people figured out, hey, a Zoom talk isn't so bad. And so, you know, that happened in our company, happened in a lot of other companies realizing that, oh no, variations actually could lead to creativity. Doing it over and over the same way kills creativity. So this pressure to change is a good thing. And permanence is really, really wonderful because it prevents stagnation and getting in a rut and all those other things we try to fight. Rituals are the opposite of variations. So, yeah, you see the kid having a meltdown, and part of you could go, gee, it's going to get better. You could even go, it might get worse, and then it'll get better, but it's not going to stay the same. Now, of course, the issue is when the kid does it well, you have to also realize that you're not done. It doesn't mean that he will do it the same way forever. That's not the description of the world as it is either. So impermanence is a good reminder to behavior analysts about what's going to happen in the future. How do we prepare for it? Everything interests. It's a little weird. This is because that is. And Buddhists talk about the contingent nature of things. Things are contingent. Things are composite. Things are composite leads to things like everything is empty. And the first time you hear that phrase, everything is empty, you just go, like, what are you talking about? And if you will, like everything is empty, what does it mean? Andy is empty. Empty of what? Andy is empty of Andy. There is no little Andy inside Andy making Andy do Andy-like things. That's the Buddhist perspective. There's nobody in there making you do these things. You are composed of other things. There's bones and art, you know, legs and tissue and blood and your heart and your brain. All those things are, are what literally make up Andy, not Andiness. And from behavior analysis, we study the same thing. We study the relationship between behavior and the environment, the conditional relationship between things. The moment we fall into that <clears throat> trap of studying behavior in isolation, you're not doing behavior analysis. Think out how many times people come and challenge you. Kim, Lori's hitting your head. Do something. <laughs> you know, they tell you the problem, fix it. And you kind of say, mm, I got a bunch of questions for you. <laughs> and then you try to figure out under what conditions. It is not about just tell me more and more about the behavior. It's I need to understand what's going on around the behavior. That's the heart of behavior analysis. So Buddhism and behavior analysis have a lot of views about how the world is and how we act in the world in a very similar manner. There's a line about emptiness. There's no chair in the chair. We don't see the chairness of the chair. We see its legs. We see something to sit on. We see a back or no back. Or we see all the things that make up the chair. And if you think about it, if there's no Andy and Andy, well, what does Skinner said about agency? Right? What, you know, Skinner from the beginning said that there was no little homunculus inside of us making us do things. We study behavior. What you do is a function of what's going on around the organism. So he has a quote, and the, the wording is a little odd, but if you've read Skinner, you've read odd things from him as well. So let's figure out who wrote this. This humankind is attached to self-production or holds to other production. Those who have not understood this have not seen it as a dart 
the one who sees, having drawn out the dart, does not think, I am the agent, nor does he think another is the agent. Who wrote that? The Buddha or Skinner? Well, it's the Buddha. But sorry, Skinner would have written the same thing, slightly different words, but he would say the same thing. The moment you think you are the agent and you're responsible for what you did, like, mm, let's keep talking. The entire book on Beyond Freedom and Dignity is all about the role of agency in history versus from a behavioral perspective. So there's a lot of views on, on this topic that, again, the Buddha and Skinner would actually align with. Right view. No one seeing the world as it is, not how you'd like it to be or how you fear it might be. Don't rely upon the experience or words of others. Okay, the Buddha said, don't believe anything that I say because I'm saying it. You know, if you, if you like the words I'm saying, try it. See how it feels for you. It's like pick up a hat, put it on. You don't wear the hat because I say it fits you. You got to try things on and then see what happens. Now, if I were in a room full of, when I do this talk with a room full of people, I do a little exercise, which is hard to do here. But essentially, I hold up a little piece of food, like an orange. And I say, what's an orange taste like? So, Kim, what's an orange taste like? Sweet. No? Stephen, you want to try it? Tastes like an orange. No? <laughs> and I do this for everybody in the room, and I think you can kind of say no matter what anybody says, they're not right. Why? You know what an orange tastes like? You stick it in your mouth. That's what an orange tastes like. Talking about what an orange tastes like is not what an orange tastes like. Okay, that's a fundamental lesson of Buddhism. It, the experience is different than talking about the experience. Well, guess what? Skinner says the same thing. Skinner and verbal behavior has lots of different discussions about how the word is not a substitute for a thing. The word is not a symbol for a thing. When mother says, you know, uh, dinner is ready, we don't come and eat her words. We don't act on the words the way we act on things. We act on words differently. So the way Skinner and the Buddhism talk about language and experience is very similar. They're distinct. We learn to talk about the world. That's different than learning to interact with things in the world. What about science? Well, in Buddhism, you try to systematically study and observe things, um, share your notes. But in Buddhism, one of the things that they often say is, are you sure? So when you study something and you're sharing your notes, you're still supposed to go, really? Are you sure? Did the world change since you took those notes? What's going on here? Um, a rather well-known Buddhist is the Dalai Lama. You've probably heard about him. He's essentially said, everything that is in science is accepted in Buddhism. In fact, if Buddhism says something about the nature of the world, but science shows it's not true, then go with science. You don't accept theory over direct observations of the world. So there's no rejection of science in Buddhism. There's an embrace. And think about what we do in behavior analysis. We're trying to get people to realize Science is a group event. Skinner talks about this over and over. Science is not done in isolation. I don't go into a lab, do something, and come back out of the room and say, hey, you know what I discovered? 
and then everybody believes me? No, but a group of people make the observation. That's the core of science. So this view on, again, how do we study the world and how do we talk about studying the world is actually very much in line between the two. Think about trying to get a publication without inter-observer you know, agreement. It's the hallmark of doing behavior analysis. Other people agree that this is what happened. So write speech, how do we talk about things? And the interesting thing in Buddhism, when you read various descriptions of right speech, it almost always starts with listen with care. The right speech actually starts with good listening, right listening. And they're, so they're interrelated right off the bat. Speak about things that you know, have experienced. When I say, well, Kim knows that so-and-so, I'm talking about Kim's experience. I'm not talking about my experience. Speak thoughtfully, mindfully, be sincere. And aim to reduce the suffering of other people. That's often the, the goal of interacting with other people. Help them. Uh, my little personal list of some of the don'ts were don't yell, scream, hoot or holler. Don't tease, mock, speak down. Don't complain, don't complain, don't complain. You see what happens a lot of my life. So I want a lot of reminders when I do my morning meditation. Okay, so the next time you find yourself complaining, think about why am I doing this? The other one that I came up with, and this is very, this is personal. Today is not the day to convince people of the rightness of my ways. Tomorrow's not looking any better. How much time do I want to spend today trying to convince people that I'm right? Think how often we're doing things like that. Uh, in Buddhism, like, mm, you may want to rethink that. Okay, so in, in behavior analysis, we talk about speak for the good of others. You're not trying to show off how smart you are. One of the best things a consultant can do, I have found, is ask a series of questions. When you hear the answers you like from the group you're consulting to, agree with them. And say, yeah, let's try that. Let's go with that. You give me down credit for coming up with the answer. I don't have to be a good consultant and say, Kim, you need to do this. You need to change this, that. Go ahead, because I'm really smart. You need to listen to me. You know, the arrogance that, I'm sorry, our field abounds with is not an evidence-based practice, okay? Uh, being a well-trained behavior analyst doesn't make you right, doesn't make you effective. So do you need credit for the changes that the people you're consulting to undertake? And the answer should be no, okay? Because you're, you're interested in the changes, not the credit for the changes. Teachers, we often talk to teachers about if a student doesn't learn, a teacher didn't teach, right? I could have engaged the most brilliant lesson I ever did, but the kid didn't change his behavior. Sorry, it was not a good lesson. It was not an effective lesson. Well, same is true in consulting. If I'm consulting to somebody and they don't change their behavior, sorry, it's not on them. They're not stubborn. They're not this. They're not bad. They're not whatever it is. It's I didn't consult with. I'm the one that needs to change in that situation. So this perspective and how speech influences other people from both points of view, I think is very important. So the, the other part that attracted me to Buddhism, if you will, is there's a, one of the Eightfold Paths is right action, right behavior. It's right there. <laughs> Buddhism is concerned with being generous, being helpful, being ethical, being patient. Yes, there are a list of don't kill, lie, cheat, engage in sexual abuse, don't use intoxicants, do things to mess around with 
what's going on in your brain, if you will, so you behave differently. But even in the very last words that are attributed to the Buddha, when he, he knew he was dying and was talking to some people, and he's talking about people are saying, oh, who's going to take over the group? Who's going to be in charge? And he's essentially saying, I've taught you for 40 years. Listen to the teaching. If you, if you follow the teaching, you're close to me. But he then says, but even though one is beside me, if he or she does not practice the Dharma, the teaching, he is not near to me. Okay, so the last words of the Buddha were not about understanding the Dharma, learning the Dharma, studying the Dharma. It's about the practice. It's about what you do. If you don't do what's in the teachings, you're not close to Buddha. Okay, so it's not about, if you will, faith, belief. It's about what you're doing. In behavior analysis, it's also about what you do. You know, there's that Yoda line, don't try, do. And it, it comes down to your job is to help everybody, including the jerk that doesn't deserve it. That's not the easy one, but that's part of who's out there. If you pick and choose who you want to help, then sorry, you're not being a good Buddhist and you're probably not being a good behavior analyst. Okay, so it's our practice. It is our actions that determine if you will, how happy we are, how much suffering we go through. Mindfulness. A lot of people talk about mindfulness, and there's some interesting perspectives from Buddhism. Uh, the Buddha wrote, don't dream about the future. Don't dwell in the past. Concentrate on the present moment. Now, some people have misinterpreted mindfulness as being so focused on the present moment that you ignore the, what happened in the past and you ignore that there's a future. So I look outside my door and it's raining and I walk outside without an umbrella because it's not raining in here. That's called dumb. That's not called being mindful. That's called just dumb. Of course there's a future that's going to happen. Of course there was a past and a recent past. Buddha never said, don't think about the future or the past. What he's saying is, don't dream about the future, is don't get so wrapped in your thoughts about what's going to come that you are ignoring your present environment. Don't dwell on what happened. I can't believe she said that to me. You know, I should have said this to her. No, no, this would have even been better. And going on and on and on, looping and looping and looping in that conversation you could have had. That's the dwelling. That's a mistake. Being aware that, oh, I saw her yesterday and she liked cheesecake. Maybe I should, you know, see if she wants some cheesecake tomorrow. That's not misthinking about the future or the past. That is actually being aware. So we don't deny the past or the future. It is always here. It is always now. You know, these are little reminders. Uh, everybody know what a Buddhist watch looks like? <laughs> What's on the face of a Buddhist watch? It's not a dial. It says now. So anytime you check the time, it's now. What about a Buddhist GPS? What would a Buddhist GPS device say? You are Everywhere. here. So, you know, yes, you need to be aware. You're always here. You know, it's always now. But that doesn't mean things are going 
to stay the same, because remember the word impermanence. Impermanence means those things will change. So it's this tricky balance between staying attentive to what's going on, you know, being aware of what happened, what's going to happen. That kind of leads to, since things are going to change, but you're still going to be there, and it's going to be now in the future, this moment is just as good as the next. This is one of the things I realized once after studying Buddhism for a while and doing my meditations and trying to remember things that I thought were important. I was once stuck in traffic, ridiculous traffic, and everyone around me is blaring their horns and slamming and yelling and screaming and out of the windows. And I'm completely calm because my sentence was, this moment is just as good as the next. I am fine. I am with me. I'm not bored. I'm not anxious. I'm okay. I really enjoyed this conversation with Andy. It was a great presentation. I hope to do more of these. So thank you so much, Andy, for doing this. If you would like to watch the video of this presentation and get the CEs, please go to our website, www.3piesquared.com. Check out ABA Business Leaders. It is part of that 33 CEU event. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Again, this is Stephen Smith with 3Pi Squared. If you would like to learn more about 3Pi Squared and the services that we offer, you can check us out at our website, www.3piesquared.com. You'll also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thanks.